This is the Alpha Universe Podcast. I'm Christopher Robinson, editor of alphauniverse.com. And in today's show, I'm speaking with the nomad filmmaker, Brandon Lee. We talk about his latest film, Hong Kong Strong, and how he works around the world without a permanent address. In Tech Talk, Sony's LD Nadia explains some of the key benefits of shooting in 4K, no matter what your final output. Then Brandon Lee has Do This Now tips for anyone who dreams of picking up and living where your creative whims take you. Brandon Lee's films are mesmerizing. With Vimeo and YouTube serving as his distribution channel, and social media as his marketing department, Brandon's films exploring exotic cultures and ways of life are seen by a global audience. After a stint working in reality TV in Los Angeles, Brandon decided to ditch his permanent address and become an international traveler and explorer. We caught up with him over Skype from an Airbnb halfway around the world. You're traveling the world without a fixed address. How did you become a global nomad? It wasn't really intentional. It's a, you know something that kind of just evolved out of my uh, lifestyle, the subjects I was shooting. But uh, basically, I I lived in Los Angeles for a long time after college. Um, I, you know, just working in reality TV, uh, living in a very fixed address, uh, living a pretty pretty normal, I would say, uh, shooter editor you know, kind of life out there in LA, uh, for pretty standard for somebody who would be shooting reality TV in the States. Um, but I really wanted to get out and explore a bit more of the world and, uh, and work on more varied projects. So when a friend of mine who had just opened up shop in Dubai, uh, at a creative agency gave me a call uh, and offered me some work out there, I was like, okay, this sounds cool. So I went out as a tester. Um, I did some shooting and, I realized that um, once you're in Dubai, you're pretty close to the rest of the other half of the world. So I was like, oh wow, I'm, I, I can get to Thailand easily, I can get to um, you know, Greece easily, I can go to places like Oman that I never even you know, had thought about going to before. So I, go, I got sort of addicted to that. You know? I was like just a, a, a short flight from Barcelona even, and I never even pictured the Middle East and Western Europe is being sort of that close. But um, Dubai being sort of a nucleus was really inspiring for me because, you know, it's not like I just started working in Canada or something where I had basically the same access to the rest of the world as I do in the United States. I had, I had just this whole new playground that I could shoot in and get inspired by. How do you make that work? I mean, just on the, on the financial side, if I can ask. So I've kind of followed this, like, I don't know, it's not, it hasn't really been a plan, but the way it's worked out is, you know, I'll do a commercial gig that pays some money and then I'll take time off uh, between gigs or sometimes time off finds me if I have no paid work to do and I'll just use that time to travel. And when I travel, I tend to shoot. And the thing about being a nomad is if I'm not, like if I'm not paying rent, if I don't have a car payment, if I don't have, uh, you know, any sort of monthly payments that are that keep me fixed in one place then i can apply those same funds toward you know a hotel or a hostel or an airbnb uh and and plane flights so it's not like it's not incredibly expensive to be a nomad as long as you're prudent about it um and i also have practiced sort of uh traveling incrementally um so you know if i have a gig in one country 
but I want to travel after that gig, I'll try to travel to some place that's adjacent or at least an, in, an inexpensive flight from that country. And then, you know, from that point, if I want to keep traveling, I just take another uh, small flight or a train ride or a ferry. So I can, I can sort of explore a lot of the world without, you know, spending a ton of money on uh, airfare and things like that. I want to talk a little bit about your latest film, Hong Kong Strong. It's a really amazing piece. How long did it take you to make it? Thank you. Uh, it took about five and a half months, all told. Um, the actual shooting portion of it was roughly a month. And then the editing was just in my free time whenever I had free time for the next three, four months after that. I became mostly acquainted with your work when you made Nomads of Mongolia. And Nomads of Mongolia was, you know, out in this very sparsely populated area of Mongolia. Really extraordinary film, incredible visuals. Hong Kong Strong takes place in, um, you know, maybe the most densely populated city in the world. How do you work with those kind of two, you know, the pendulum sort of swinging (laughs) that way? How does that work for you? That was intentional, (laughs) actually. Uh, I, you know, I like to not repeat myself from video to video, if possible. Uh, because I feel like if I'm doing too similar of a subject uh, more than one time, you know, or like multiple times in a row, then I'm kind of, in a way, almost competing with myself. So I wanted to make sure that whatever I did after Nomads of Mongolia was as dissimilar to Nomads of Mongolia as possible, so that when it came out and people are like scrolling through my videos, you know, they're not watching one video and saying, oh, that's awesome, and then scrolling down to the next one and being like, oh, that's like a weaker version of the other one. You know, I wanted them to be just very different. Uh, and also, after spending you know, a lot of time out in Mongolia uh, in, in a place that's so sparsely populated and shooting in a place that has so little infrastructure, I was much more interested in taking uh, in exploring a place that was the complete opposite for my next project, uh, for instance, you know, when we when I was shooting in Mongolia, just to get to one location to shoot, uh, you know, f- a family of four uh, in a gear, uh, you know, the the traditional tent, it would take sometimes three to six hours of jeep ride to get there. Whereas in Hong Kong, I could find uh, a wealth of subjects to shoot in just one square mile or one city block or even you know, just one uh, city park or something like that. It was a completely different experience and a lot more dense in terms of the things that I could shoot in one area. Was it just you doing all of the shooting for Hong Kong Strong? No, actually, I had a lot of help. Um, I did I did the lion's share of the ground shooting, uh, but there were actually two different drone contributors. Uh, I can't personally fly a drone yet, so I had a couple people uh, fly for me. And then I had some other people on the ground uh, shooting with me. Uh, one of them was my producer, Ansley Sawyer, who uh, also helped organize the shoot. Uh, she you know, did a lot of the initial outreach in getting the locations and finding the subjects for me to shoot. So there was her, and there were also some... Uh, there was a guy named Blake who was... Uh, he, he was following me as a student, actually, during the shoot. So as he learned, you know, as he was apprenticing, uh, he contributed some footage, too. And then I had a couple other people who were 
coming in and out of the shoot just as uh, basically PAs, interns, uh, who were just local in Hong Kong and were interested in being a part of it. This being the Alpha Universe podcast, I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about the gear that you used to shoot. Sure. Well, it was all Sony Alpha-based. Um, the the A camera on the shoot, if you will, was uh, an A7R II uh, mounted on a gimbal most of the time. And at the time, I was using a Beholder DS1 gimbal. And then I had various other cameras that uh, contributed to the shoot, um, either cameras that I owned or cameras that other people who dropped in to help shoot owned. But we used uh, an A7S sometimes, A7S II sometimes, uh, a RX10 II. Uh, that was something that I used for a few slow motion shots because uh, it does 1080p 120. And then what else? Um, we had an A6000 that uh, was just uh, my Ansley owned an A6000. So uh, we used that to contribute some extra footage. Uh, and then drones, then uh, DJI's uh, Inspire One drone. And I think someone used a Phantom at some point, Phantom 3 or Phantom 4. What makes you choose Sony? Well, first and foremost, form factor. Uh, I've been using the Sony Next series and then the Alpha series. Uh, I've been, you know, I've been using that series of mirrorless for, I think, five years now, ever since the Next 5N came out, uh, because that was the first one, I believe, that did progressive, uh, whereas before that, or 1080p, uh, whereas before that, the, the original Next 5, I, I would, wouldn't use it because it was 1080i. But yeah, when... As soon as the mirrorlesses started doing 1080p and above, uh, I was hooked because it's so small, it fits in the palm of my hand, it's flat, it's tiny, you know, it fits in a small backpack, it fits in uh, my pocket sometimes if I, you know, I could put a pancake lens on there and, and treat it almost like a compact point and shoot, which is crazy because it's either an APS-C or a full frame sensor. Uh, so yeah, that, fo that form factor is really important. Uh, second most important thing would be the low light. Uh, you know, the, the A7S has treated me very well as a uh, run and gun camera because I can get these really cinematic shots in low light at not the widest aperture. You know, I'm not a super shallow depth of field guy. Um, and one reason for that is because I feel like if I'm shooting a travel film, it's not just about the subject. You know, it's not just a portrait of a face. It's about the place too. And in my shots, I try to frame them so that you have subject in the foreground and you have an identifiable uh, background that gives character and uh, you know, specifies the place they're in. And that's something that um, I've been inspired like by National Geographic and you know, other uh, sort of photojournalistic uh, influences for that look. So that means if I'm shooting in low light, and I want a little bit of bokeh, but I don't want to throw the background completely out of focus. I don't want to be shooting at, you know, 50 millimeter f1.2 just to get an exposure. So having a camera like the a7S or even the a7R2 in 4K mode um, and the crop mode, you can shoot in really low light and, and shoot at f4, which is great. You mentioned um, about the, the place. And when I watch your films, especially Nomads of Mongolia, Hong Kong Strong, Tokyo Roar, the place is is very much a character. I mean, it's in the title of the film, so no one should be surprised that the place 
figure so heavily, but it really becomes a character. And in each of those films, the way you have shown that landscape, that that urban environment, whatever it may be, has its own identity. It's, it's not just that you have your settings for the camera and you use the same ones everywhere. There's really a sense that you've gone out and sort of tweaked things around a little bit to make that place unique from film to film. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I try to have a sort of concept of the place that I'm trying to get across with the film. <clears throat> For instance, uh, with Nomads of Mongolia, when I was out there, I felt like I was in like a Western, you know, like a, a movie about cowboys rustling cattle, stuff like that. So I shot it in sort of an old school way. I shot it sort of the way that you would shoot a Western with wide <clears throat> sorry, super wide angles, long takes. Um, you know, the, the the horizon was always in the back of the frame whenever possible. I tried to keep that that horizon. I, I shot with really deep depth of field. Um, and then I wanted to modernize it by having the camera move all the time. Because in a traditional Western, the camera doesn't really move that much. So through, throughout Nomads of Mongolia, the camera starts moving more and more and more. Uh, as the film progresses, as the action gets crazier. Uh, so, yeah, I, I intentionally wanted to create that feeling that uh, you're watching, you know, a familiar genre of film, even if you don't quite place that it's a Western when you're watching it. But, you know, and get that same feeling that you would get watching, you know, an old John Ford Western or a Clint Eastwood Western or whatever. Uh, and then with Hong Kong Strong, I wanted to take very different approach um, and treat it like almost a, a theme park ride or something. Uh, that was the initial concept and that's why the film starts with that sort of endless hyperzoom sort of effect over the titles um, and then goes into the crazy, you know, invisible wipe kind of uh, super montage after that. Um, I wanted it to be like that but then uh, toward the end it morphs into almost a kind of an operatic climax um, because of the drama of the Chinese New Year. So, because we, look, we've all seen that travel genre film where you have all the crazy wipes and the cool transitions and, you know, it's zooming in on stuff and it's doing speed ramps and suddenly going to slow motion and then suddenly doing, uh, you know, a flashy transition to the next shot. You know, that's, that's been done for many, many years in many cool travel films now. So I wanted to start with that and have it morph into something else at the end that maybe you haven't seen so much, which is a completely different kind of montage of cross-cutting uh, six different stories at the end of Hong Kong Strong. You know, I was just about to ask you about that because there is so much time shifting and then so much cross-cutting. It's almost like the film sort of sets up like it's in, in acts you know, like in a, th a three act, you know, film and you have a whole lot of time shifting that leads ultimately to a whole lot of cross cutting um, and part of the pacing and everything. First of all, let's talk about the time shifting. Yes, a lot of people have done that before, but you're doing it, I think, in kind of a unique way. The combination between hyperlapse and time lapse and slow motion, um, it really is creating pacing in a way that you don't often see in some of those travel films that you talked about before. Do you work on the time-shifting a lot, the time-shifting concept a lot in pre-production? In pre-production, uh, pre not so much in pre-production. I've done a lot of tests. I guess you could call those, you know, pre-production. But I'm uh, with the time-shifting, it's... I, I shoot at the frame rate that's appropriate for the kinds of uh, alterations to the time I might want to do. 
So for instance, uh, when I do my hyperlapses or something, I'm, I'm not shooting stills, I'm just slowing down the shutter of the camera itself, uh, especially if it's a low light time lapse, which lets me expose at a lower ISO. Because you know, if I know that I'm gonna speed it up to some degree in post, then I will shoot at 1 15th or 1 10th of a second um, because then I get some natural motion blur and it gives me, and then I can shoot it like ISO 200 or ISO 100 instead of ISO 6400 for the same subject. So I'll do things like that um, when I'm shooting and I'll do little tests of that maybe beforehand uh, when I first get the camera or when I first come up with an idea. Uh, and, then, and then I create sort of a menu or a catalog of different tricks that I can pull in different circumstances. And then when I'm out there shooting, I'm doing a lot of improvising. And it's kind of like, you know, it's, I'm, I'm just like dancing around with the camera. I'm seeing things, not literally dancing, but, you know, uh, I'm seeing things that inspire me. And then I'm recalling these tricks that I could use to bring out what I think is cool about the subject. Uh, and it could be really subtle. Like, for instance, I just filmed uh, a ceremony at a temple recently where the monks were wearing robes and because it was so hot that night they had fans blowing on the monks and the fans were blowing the robes in this really dramatic way so if i just filmed it normally with no time manipulation you might not even notice the rippling of the robes but i shot it uh 120 frames a second for some close-ups and then 60 frames a second for some wide shots and I did a couple speed ramps in a little test edit that I did where you suddenly go from regular motion of the monks just moving around to sudden like super Zack Snyder slow motion of the rogue sort of, you know, uh, flowing in like superhero manner, you know? And that sudden shift of the speed draws your attention to the motion of the rogue. And that's the whole point of the slow motion. Um, and I think that's the important thing about these time manip manipulation tricks. Like, if you're going to do it, do it for a reason. Don't just do it because your shot's boring otherwise. Um, I see sometimes people will speed up a shot of something slow. Like, let's say it's somebody uh, washing their car. You know, it's, you're in Cuba and somebody's just wiping down their old, uh, you know, Chevy car. And it's a beautiful shot, but... You're thinking, oh my God, people are going to be bored if I shoot this in 24p. I have to speed this up or I have to do like a sudden cut to slow motion or I have to do a crazy camera move. It's like, well, okay, if the subject, if you're calling out attention to something that's actually interesting about the subject, do that. Um, if you're doing it just because you think your shot's boring, maybe rethink the concept of the video or maybe just trust the shot. I keep harping on the pacing because it just feels like it's, it's, the way you pace things, the energy you bring to it, the creation of energy and tension, and then the dissipation of it is just such a such a fun ride to go through. Thanks. Um, I think you do it unlike anybody else I've seen, so I really dig it. The pacing is the hardest part. You know, people always ask me about the camera, the lenses, the gimbal. I'm like, yeah, that, that's the easy, easy stuff. <laughs> the stuff that you can look up on a forum, that's easy. If you can read yeah. about it, it's easy. Pacing you can't learn that by reading about it. And the way I get it right is I sit there in my room for 16 hours straight a day for three months or not every day, but you know, when I edit, it's like, it's, I'm just sitting there and moving shots around eight frames, three frames at a time, watching it, thinking it's awesome, 
going out, getting a coffee, coming back, realizing it's crap, throwing <laughs> it away, <laughs> you know, starting over. Like that's that's kind of where the pacing comes from. It's just a whole bunch of trial and error. Do you shoot in 4K primarily? Nowadays, I shoot in 4K whenever I can. When Sony comes out with a uh, a handheld mirrorless camera that's 4K 60p, I will jump for joy because I'll probably always be shooting in 60p at that point. But right now, I'm shooting uh, anything in slow motion. I'm I'm you know going down to 1080p. Mm-hmm. And I'm shooting 1080p 60 or, you know, t- 1080p or even 720p 120. Uh, but for all the, for anything that's not slow motion, and anything that's not too rolling shutter critical, if you will, uh, I shoot. Yeah, I shoot in uh, 4K. Now, are you shooting in 4K to to be you know um, future proof, just because it's the biggest uh, format you can get, or? Are you shooting in 4K knowing you're going to be delivering HD and you just want the benefits of you know, being able to reframe and, and maybe make some moves in, in post? I'm shooting in 4K because there's no reason not to acquire in the highest quality format that the camera can deliver. You know, if, if I want to keep, if I want to ever master something in 4K, I've got it. Uh, if I want to use it in a future project, I've got the 4K, which is going to remain future-proof for a while. And then... There's, uh, yeah, there's not only the benefit of being able to crop in post, uh, stabilize in post, but also uh, I'm a little superstitious in that I think the color grading looks better if you color grade 4K footage in a 1080p timeline. And, uh, you know, the jury's out for me on whether or not that actually holds up to, uh, you know, scientific scrutiny, but it feels like the color grades better. Go to the show notes at alphauniverse.com to find links to Brandon Lee's Vimeo page, as well as his YouTube channel, where he answers questions and produces tutorials showing how he works and the gear he uses. Brandon will be back in a few minutes with a do this now tip for anyone who wants to try living the dream life of a creative global vagabond. Brandon Lee mentioned several reasons why he shoots 4K, even if he doesn't necessarily plan to deliver the final output in 4K. I spoke with Sony's LD Nadia to learn more about the benefits of 4K capture with Sony cameras. The 4K file gives you a lot of latitude as far as moves you can make um, and, and cropping and reframing, but also it can really benefit um, as far as the, the detail that you're showing and color fidelity and, and uh, overall image quality. Right. So there, there's actually two things that you mentioned in there. So the last thing that you mentioned was the the detail and the fidelity, and that really comes out of being able to utilize the entire sensor, and that's what other manufacturers typically don't use. You know, they typically crop into the sensor um, or they use a codec, which is, you know, like motion JPEG that type of thing which really doesn't benefit your end user it gives you you know very large files but not the same amount of detail that you're going to get out of shooting in you know codec like xavcs or when you shoot uh you know uncompressed 4k output to an external recorder you know like a pixie or atomus um that you know do really good jobs of capturing uncompressed 4k now that being said your 4k image um if you're utilizing you know like a sony camera that uses you know full pixel readout no pixel binning or no line skipping you get really detailed uh images really sharp edges but the second thing that you mentioned or the the first thing that you had mentioned in that was shooting 4k what we typically refer to as shooting 4k for 2k 
And what we really mean by that is you're actually capturing a 4K image that you're then going to utilize as an HD file output. You know, not everybody um, at the moment is looking for 4K output. Now, there's many, many benefits of shooting in 4K for 2K. First of all, um, archival purposes. If you're shooting 4K file now, even though your client may only require an HD delivery, let's say for instance, you're a wedding videographer, um, you have this 4K camera, um, your client says to you, you know, I don't actually have a 4K TV or I have a 4K TV, but I have no way of playing back my 4K content, whatever it is, um, you can shoot 4K and you can deliver in HD. Later on down the line, that person may go and buy a 4K TV or buy a 4K player and then come back to you and say, you know what, I changed my mind. I actually want to have my wedding video in 4K. If you don't have it, shame on you, right? The, the technology is out there right now. You should be shooting in 4K. So that's really the first benefit of shooting 4K for 2K. The second thing is um, being able to, what you were talking about, crop in. And 4K being four times the size, picture taking four HD TVs and, you know, doing uh, basically a quad of 4K TVs. And that's sometimes why they call it quad HD. It's because it's essentially 4K TVs all in one image. You capture those four TVs, you can actually crop into any part of that frame. Now, in still photography, it's widely known that, yes, I want to shoot, you know, 36, 42 megapixels because I can crop in later on with and still maintain a lot of detail. The same goes for shooting 4K video, delivering in 2K. You can shoot 4K and crop in essentially four times to where you want to be. This also allows you to do um, what we call zoom, pan and zoom. So you can zoom in, which is essentially cropping into a 4K image, but you could also pan up and down. So you can have a fixed shot. Let's say for instance, uh, I'll give you a scenario. You take a wide shot of a person walking across a screen and you're gonna deliver in HD. You can crop into that person. You can have a locked down shot, which means the camera is not gonna move, it's just going to lock down, somebody's gonna walk in from frame left and walk out of frame right. When you actually go to render that film, you can crop into that person and you can follow them across the screen, which means you're actually doing a zoom and then panning with that person across the screen. And it looks like you've done this motion shot. Meanwhile, you haven't, you've just locked down the camera. You're doing the motion shot in post. So that's a really, really big benefit of doing 4K for 2K. Do you have a question about Sony mirrorless cameras and lenses? Go to the Alpha Universe Facebook page to send your question our way. You can find a link in the podcast show notes at alphauniverse.com. Living without a permanent address, moving from country to country on cheap plane tickets and Airbnb vacancies is a fantasy for a lot of photographers and filmmakers. Brandon Lee has some do this now advice if you want to give it a go yourself. We're back with Brandon Lee and Brandon... What advice could you give to our listeners right now who, who want to be you, who want to be a global nomad, something they can do right now that would help set them on that path? So uh, if you want to be a global nomad, the first thing to do, I suppose, would be to try to fit everything you need for two weeks into a suitcase that you can fly economy with. Um, like you have to keep it under 23 kg, which I think is about 50 pounds. Um, and then, you know, you get your carry on just 
you could you could actually try to pack a suitcase and look at the stuff that's in that suitcase after it's packed and ask yourself do I want this to be my life <laughs> because that was a little shocking to me when I realized how much I would have to throw out in order to be a nomad um, you know having having stuff has become so normal uh, for so many of us and living life without really anything other than the bare bare essentials and for me it's even more bare essentials because a lot of that weight and a lot of that space is not taken up by personal items it's taken up by camera gear that I can't even use for any personal comfort you know it's like okay I want to have another camera battery I want to have a gimbal well that adds to the total weight um, so yeah it's really it's you know it's a matter of saying can I throw out my bed can I uh, throw out this collection of vinyl records that I've been holding on to or, or can I send that to you know my parents house or something and not see it again for the next you know five years of my life um, just just carry that bag around drag it around for a bit go on a week go on a two week long trip if you can take the time off and you know just see if that feels right to you because some people the moment they don't have all of their stuff around them feel liberated and they're like oh my god you know suddenly I'm I'm like a you know, I'm like a turtle or whatever. I've got my home on my back and I can just, I can go anywhere I want now. And I'm not bound by stuff. I'm not bound by these responsibilities. And some people, when they don't have that stuff around them, they realize, oh wait, I love my home. What the heck am I doing? This, you know, this traveling lifestyle is actually not what I want. What I wanted just was to be like shooting all the time. So maybe you, you look for more shooting in your hometown. Or maybe you realize you just want to travel occasionally. You know, maybe it's just a, a weekend warrior thing instead of a, a lifestyle. Well, thanks so much again. And I uh, really appreciate that advice. And again, thanks for being on the Alpha Universe podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Alpha Universe podcast. Join me next time when my guest will be Camera Lab's creator and editor, Gordon Lang. You can find the show notes for this episode at alphauniverse.com. Subscribe to the Alpha Universe podcast at iTunes or in the podcast app on your smartphone or tablet.